0: Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Moster, and today's conversation is one, well, kind of applicable to the holiday season um, coming off of all of that guests and visits and all the delicious foods, we all might be experiencing a little intestinal dysbiosis. And today, we have an expert, Dr. Jan Sukadolski, is here to talk to us about his article from January 2019, Clinician's Brief, entitled Just That, Intestinal Dysbiosis. Dr. Jan, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, we're very excited to have you. And, and I think this is a great conversation. I personally i am a um, huge fan of probiotics. I've learned a lot over the last couple of years about just gut health and, and keeping you know our intestinal flora happy. And it's made a big difference in my life. So I was excited to see the, the entitlement of this article. I was excited to see bringing some light to this topic. But before we break down all this information and, and I ask you all of these burning questions that I have, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background. I know you're an immunologist, where you work and how you got there.
1: So I am did my veterinary school, my veterinary degree in Vienna, Austria, and then I was working in private practice for a few years. And then I always wanted to come back to academia, so I had the opportunity to come to Texas A&M University and to do a PhD in veterinary microbiology. And so I am working at the GI lab at Texas A&M, which is a very well-known lab for developing biomarkers for gi disease and now we're also doing a lot of research for about insulin microbiota and i'm at the moment an associate professor here i'm an associate director at the gi lab for research and also the head of microbiome sciences
0: wow i I mean Incredibly impressive. Uh, I mean, you've got a lot going on, no doubt, and and it's exciting because I think this is a, a really a busy time, I guess, for a, a lot of the research that you're doing. But before I get into it, tell me, are you one of those veterinarians who always knew they wanted to be a veterinarian, or did that come on later in life?
1: <laughs> I actually, I think, pretty early. I think I was probably like around ten years old. Uh, My grandparents were farmers, so I always enjoyed being every summer on a farm. So I always was around animals. And so for me, veterinary medicine was kind of an early desire, and then I was lucky to be able to study it.
0: Well, we're very lucky you studied it, and that you have have had this growing passion where you do in immunology and and in in microbiome research. I think it's it's just incredibly fascinating, and I also think it's it's a pretty hot topic in veterinary medicine right now because of the growing use of of fecal transplants. Specifically, is what I I think I'm seeing, but I think there might not be as much clinical knowledge about you know the the pathophysiology and other common conditions that may have associated intestinal dysbiosis. So can you just kind of give us an overview of just what we're talking about when we say intestinal dysbiosis?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think coming back to your first uh, comment about the microbiota, I think we're really realizing for the past 10, 15 years, the real importance of it. And that's why we're also at a very early stage. It's almost like we identified a new organ system. And nowadays we actually referring to the microbiome or microbiota as an, an own organ system, because we understand that all the gut bacteria that are present in a small and large intestine are not just an immunologically important, but they actually a so-called metabolic organ. And so we now have all these contributions. So when you imagine pretty much everything that comes into the GI tract, it is food or drugs or other medications, they're going to be somehow metabolized. And all those small metabolized, so those end products of bacterial fermentation, they ultimately going to be absorbed by the host. And now we're just realizing how important this organ system is. And that's why we also need to understand that our concept of what is normal or what is abnormal, so what is a dysbiosis, is still very much evolving. So traditionally, when we thought about dysbiosis, is that we thought it's a simple change in bacterial composition so we said okay some bacteria overgrow so for example you can have an overgrowth of Clostium perfringens or an overgrowth of E. coli That's a dysbiosis so it was more based on bacterial taxa so that's still probably accurate and at the moment the best assessment of dysbiosis is still based on is the composition of the flora changed but as you refer to pathophysiology, I think that's really an evolving concept because we also now understand that if bacterial flora changes, there's also many functional changes in the in the microbiota. And because of that, also in the metabolism of, of the host. And it's an area that is still in development. So we just now are really having tools to assess all of those different metabolic functions. So metabolomics is an area that you're going to hear more and more about it because we can now measure small metabolites, so small biochemicals. It could be vitamins, carbohydrates like lactates, could be amino acids. All of them are parts of microbial fermentation, and they play a really important role in the hosts. So I think well, the more we're going to research, the more we understand that dysbiosis is a change in the composition of bacteria, but it's also accompanied by functional changes. And those functional changes are probably the major important drivers. And this is just really a beginning area because we're still trying to understand how are they the altering disease and what are the functions and how does it affect the host. But on the upside, it's going to be a bright future because the more we understand these functional changes, the more we can develop potential therapeutic options to, to reverse those changes and ultimately really normalize the gut and hopefully Bring this normal function of the gastrointestinal back into our patients.
0: I get I- incredibly excited when I think about this. Um, equally as excited because I think I think what you just said there is so important and so true that in, in and I don't want to label the numbers of years, but right, like in in some number of years away, we're going to look back and. The gut health, I think, is going to link to behavioral concerns that we have, right? These allergies and insensitivities and dermatological health and even neurologic conditions. I think that we will discover the gut health and, you know, the gut flora and population to be directly related with almost every body system we work with.
1: That's correct. And I think I have a lot of very, very great discussions with colleagues of mine who are specialists. Some some of them are specialists in neurology, some of them are specialists in nephrology. And I think what we're really discovering that many of those compounds, they really go through the gut system. And the gut is really plays a much more central role than we anticipated. So many of those pathways they have really there's a gut-kidney axis. That what that means is that yes, the disease happens in the kidney, but it is a feedback loop into the guts. And some of those proteolytic enzymes, the degradation products of proteolysis, they can actually make the gut progression of cuts of kidney disease, or will accelerate the progression of kidney disease. Similarly, the, the so-called brain-gut uh, axis is now very, very well established. I think there are, there are new probiotics on the market from some large companies. They actually, the probiotic therapy that really addresses well anxiety. So again, what happens in the guts has definitely a very, very important impact on other organ systems.
0: Yeah. And I think that that part is is so exciting. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of the kidney feedback loop. That's, again, I think just a layer of what we're going to continue to discover. And so I, I think before we get too much further, I find people sometimes get confused about that total population, right? So the difference in the correlations between the, the prebiotic populations and the probiotic populations and and the correlations and differences between those two.
1: Yeah. So when we look along the the GI, the length of the GI tract. We know that a small intestine is usually less populated. So there's fewer bacteria. And the reason for that is that motility is a very important kind of preventive mechanism. So the more motility you have in a small intestine, the more bacteria get pushed downstream into a large intestine. So in the small intestine, we also have a little bit more of a mix of aerobic bacteria. So we have more facultative aerobes like lactobacilli, more E. coli, and so on. And then once you come into the large intestine, the colon is highly populated. So we are discussing or estimating there's roughly 100 trillion bacterial cells in the gut. Wow. And so it outnumbers the host cell count almost by a factor of 10. So you would have to imagine that roughly you have 10 times as many bacteria as you have host cells. And so the, the, the large intestine is really like a fermentation chamber. There's low motility, that's why bacteria can grow much better there. There's a very low oxygen content, meaning most of the bacteria that we are, have in the gut are strict anaerobes. And it's also the reason why we for the longest time didn't really appreciate the sheer numbers of bacteria present. Because all of those bacteria, as I said, are strict anaerobes, so they're very difficult to culture. So when you take a fecal sample, for example, and try to culture it under standard condition, we're not going to be able to grow this bacteria. Because most fecal samples, when they were cultured, we looked for for Campylobacter or for Salmonella or, for example, for E. coli. So those are different standard conditions. So for the longest time, we didn't even know that all this bacteria exists in the colon. And with the advent of molecular tools, PCR-based tools, and sequencing uh, technologies, we were able to actually recognize there's actually many, many more bacteria present in the guts than we ever knew. And that was really the beginning of the microbiome research. So that's why it's also like a, a very early stage, because we can now identify them using molecular tools. But we still cannot really culture them properly, or it's very difficult to culture. Only very few specialist lab can do that. So because of that, we still know very little about their functional properties of many of those bacterial strains inside the gut. So
0: the ones that we do want to, do, we do know about. Just inclusive, not to cut you off. Can you explain a little how they work too? So yes.
1: Yeah, so I think when you because coming back to your question about probiotics and prebiotics, and I think that's really a, a, a great uh, approach to improvement of our microbiota so by definition a probiotic is a bacterium that is live and we give orally into the guts so we want to have we pretty much you know buy this product as a, as a probiotic supplement we give it orally and we hope that this probiotic once it's given colonizes the gut and fulfills some functional or properties that are beneficial to the host a prebiotic on the other side is actually a food supplement in this case it's fiber it's any kind of fiber source that when we give it it reaches the large intestine and the bacteria who are resident that means already present in the guts can utilize this fiber and can grow preferentially so we can kind of shift some of those beneficial bacterial groups that we target with this kind of food supplement for them so that's the difference with prone prebiotics and so for understanding the really complexity of the of the microbiome It is, we have to understand that many of those probiotic supplements, for example, are lactic acid bacteria. So they are Lactobacillus, Streptococcus, Enterococcus or Bifidobacterium. And those are bacterial groups that traditionally we always associated with benefits from the host. But now what we discovered in the last 5 to 10 years is that the gut is actually populated predominantly by other bacterial groups that are strict anaerobes and some of them we know better now is for example fecalibacterium those are bacterial groups that are very difficult to culture so they are present in the gut we at the moment we cannot give them as supplements yet but for example what they have they have a very important role in producing short-chain fatty acids and those short-chain fatty acids are very important energy sources for the host they modulate immunologically they prevent inflammation in the guts. They uh, provide nutrition for the anthrocytes. They improve the barrier function and so on. So again, what we're learning with time is that many of those groups that we targeted traditionally with probiotics are important, but now we identified additional bacteria of importance. So that's why this probiotic field and also the prebiotic field, how can we target them is really still evolving. And still it's going to take us a few years to really understand how can we target those really important resident bacteria in the gut. How can we improve them?
0: I think we're going to learn more every day. I mean, you say only a few years away. That's really pretty significant, right? Because this is an area rapidly Exactly. I mean, I, it just feels like it's going so quickly. It's giving us so much information, but I also think we have we have so much to learn. And I know for myself as a technician, I've always felt pretty strongly about making sure we do something to supplement gut bacteria when we send home antibiotics when we have those patients that have that kind of wiped out gut. But I think sometimes. It is questionable about how you know, quote unquote, scientific this quote unquote stuff, right? <laughs> like we just have this tube of goo, and does it work or doesn't it? Yeah. And, and and I'm going to talk to you more about fecal transplantation, right? Because this is important too. But I just kind of wanted to cover this aspect of it in terms of how do you feel about those types of things? How necessary? How much should we be addressing gut health in practice? Kind of kind of tell me about that. I know I asked a lot of questions there.
1: <laughs> no, uh, first the most important question. I think we need to always address gut health. I think the more we learn about pathophysiology of GI disease is that it comes hand in hand, the host and the population of bacteria alters. altered. So it's not just one or the other, it's a combination and we need to address both sides of the equation because dysbiosis can drive inflammation in the gut, but also inflammation will drive dysbiosis and then suddenly becomes this interactive link and a spiral. And so ultimately we're going to always have to address both. So when it comes down to probiotic and antibiotic usage, it's a very, very interesting time because the more we learn about antibiotics, we discover actually that they causing a severe dysbiosis and almost in every single case. So even in situations where we give antibiotics for, for example, acute diarrhea, and even if we perceive a benefit, surprisingly at the same time, we might see a clinical improvement. Nevertheless, we still induce a quite severe dysbiosis in the large intestine. And it's a little bit counterintuitive because we always thought that dysbiosis always is linked to clinical science, but we discovered it's not always the case. So it's a little bit more difficult. So antibiotics seem to work on a different level. They don't really address the microbiome as much, if they're clinically active, they seem to work on a different level. More on a cytokine level or more on a mucosal level and so on. But it also means that every single time we give antibiotics, we're actually inducing a dysbiosis. In humans, it's very well recognized that antibiotics are associated with clinical science. So there are studies that roughly 30 to 40% of people who take antibiotics will experience some form of antibiotic-associated adverse effects. Could be vomiting, could be diarrhea could be at least some uh, constipation or some other uh, feelings in the gut that are not really uh, beneficial. And we see also now that several studies came out the last few years that also dogs, when they receive antibiotics, induce a dysbiosis. And controlled studies have actually shown that often some of the antibiotics given also have a high incidence of some GI signs in dogs and cats. So it's definitely also similar like we see in humans. So the the question is, should we give a probiotic when we give an antibiotic? And I think the data is probably strong enough to suggest yes. So in humans, they have shown that when we give probiotics together with antibiotics, we have a chance to ameliorate some of those antibiotic-associated adverse effects. So there is an improvement in vomiting, improvement in diarrhea. We have to be aware, not every patient is going to benefit from that but from a statistical point of view or from meta-analysis it has been clearly shown that probiotics might help with some of those clinical signs. but we also have to be understanding of on the other side that often we thought that when we give a probiotic we can improve the dysbiosis induced through antibiotics and now all new data would suggest that's not enough because the antibiotic effect is so strong that we're really wiping out the normal microbiota, which usually comes back after a few weeks when we stop the, the antibiotic administration. But when we give a probiotic, we can ameliorate some of the clinical signs, but it's not enough that we give probiotics to really actually prevent the dysbiosis that happens through antibiotics, if that makes sense. Because simply antibiotics really wipe out the microbiota, and probiotics, there's just not enough bacteria that we give at this time to really replenish the total microflow that is there. So we have to understand that it's useful to give probiotics to be able to prevent in some animals some of those adverse effects that we see, but probiotics is not sufficient to really prevent the dysbiosis induced through antibiotics. That's why ultimately we're trying to really research a lot of disease phenotypes and saying is it actually really worth giving antibiotics because while we are so used to giving them and we believe there's a benefit, there several studies have shown now that in acute diarrhea in most cases the speed of recovery is the same whether you give antibiotics or not. So we're really thinking that in some disease forms, especially acute diarrhea, it might be really wise to not. Administer antibiotics, uh, like only in those cases where we really, really suspect uh, bacterial infection.
0: Yeah. And I think it's just one more argument for why we need to really be careful when we are choosing to give an antibiotic. I mean, we know the antimicrobials have their place, but in assessing that, more harm than good. I'm all about my probiotics on a daily basis. Do you think that's a place we'll get to with pets one day that it's a daily supplement?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I personally that's my personal opinion. I don't think we have strong data. I personally think that we need to definitely prophylactically in if there's a healthy animal, I think fiber is probably a much better approach for improving our gut health or gut microbiota. The reason for that is that when you give a probiotic, you're really giving only a limited number of strains. It could be one strain or some probiotics have maybe a few strains. But again, it's only a very limited part of the microbiome that we're giving using a probiotic. And so the question is, which probiotic would we be giving? It's because probiotic is important to understand. Each probiotic strain has a unique function. That means when you choose one probiotic, one probiotic could be, for example, immunostimulatory. Another probiotic could be improving gut barrier function. And so in a healthy gut, it's difficult to predict what actually is the most important one. So for me, it makes more sense in a healthy animal or in a even healthy human. When you give fiber, we're going to be able to much better feed the existing microbiota that is present and improve the diversity and so on. And so it's much more like a holistic approach and we can cover many more potential areas. So with probiotic, when I use probiotics a lot in disease. Because in this case, we know we have other diarrhea or we have a, in some disease phenotypes like chronic disease, we have an abnormal barrier function, for example. So we know that with those probiotics, when we add them to a regular therapy as so an the adjunct, we can actually improve some parts of this pathophysiology. So me, for, for me personally, I rather use probiotics in disease and focus much more on healthy nutrition in a healthy individual.
0: Need help financing an acquisition, expansion, remodeling, or starting up? With a division built by a DVM and former business owners, they know the business and they can help you reach your financial goals. Learn more at ffb1.com. Member FDIC Equal Housing lender. So then that makes me wonder, do we increase the fiber that we're giving our pets? I mean, we talk so much about meat and protein. Are we missing out on giving them what they need for healthy guts?
1: So I think that's really a big area of research. And I know that many pet food companies are experimenting and researching different fiber sources, fiber blends to be added in some of our diets. I think most of GI diets have fiber blends for better microbiota. And so the question is, should we also add those more to the healthy animals? And I think, personally, I think it would make sense. But again... I'm sure that some of those pet food companies are working on this already.
0: I like that, that makes sense. We can just be paying attention to those great brands, and i I believe you're right. I think it is something your research is driving when we when we talk about making sure pet foods are 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 healthy and complete. okay, all right, we've got to get into the the transplant microbes because I think this is also an incredibly interesting, growing question filled area that that people are running into. I mean, we know I think um what I see the most success with, and i and I could be very. Um, you know, narrow scoped is our parvo patients. But when else are we using uh, this super slurry, as we love to call it? And, and are we using it enough? Should we, should we be slurrying more of our patients?
1: Yeah, so theoretically, again, coming back to it, I think, like in, when you look in human medicine, in human medicine, the major reason for using fecal transplant is for Clostridium difficile infection. But in human medicine, there are very strict regulations. So they're not able to really use them in other disease phenotypes. So many studies are experimental. So there's not enough knowledge to see in what other disease phenotypes fecal transplant might be useful. So we have a benefit here in, in veterinary medicine, we can potentially definitely try the different disease phenotypes. So I think personally, that, as I said before, the microbiome is a very important metabolic organ. And normalizing the microbiota is going to be really crucial as a junk therapy in many disease phenotypes. It's a little bit too early to say in what diseases should we use fecal transplants. So. Like, I mean, it's always good to start where we have little studies. And again, when you come from human medicine, the best success is it is infections. So in, in, human, in human medicine, it's just difficult. difficile. Now, in veterinary medicine, dogs and cats, closin infection is quite rare, I would believe. It's not very common. So we don't have the same disease phenotype. But as you can see, uh, we have a clinical study done in, in Parvonol we but it's published. And they've shown very nicely that when you add a fecal transplant to standard therapy, so helping recover the microbiome quicker, it also had a really very tremendous success for recovery of those patients. So diarrhea... I think the hospitalization time in the study was a few days shorter for those patients who received the fecal transplants in addition to standard therapy compared to those puppies who only received standard therapy. So again, showing that if we can improve the gut microbiota, we definitely can have an adjunct therapeutic success in those patients. Now, we did a study now that was published as an abstract at ACVM in dogs with acute diarrhea and we compared it to dogs that received metronidazole. And we showed that actually their clinical recovery was very similar in both. Statistically speaking, animals that received a fecal transplant recovered a little bit quicker, but I don't think it was a small sample size. But we we looked at the microbiota and the metabolome, and we showed that using a fecal transplant, the microbiome and metabolome in these dogs with acute diarrhea recovered much quicker and became normal, versus those animals with metronidazole they actually had even after one month a completely abnormal microbiome. Again, suggesting that treatments that we traditionally use, even we see clinical benefits, we actually have a negative impact on our, on our microbiota. Now again, so not only really saying that we should use in acute diarrhea, but what we did in the study is to show that we can identify some pathways what are abnormal in acute diarrhea, and ultimately, we can maybe hopefully in the future say, which will tax or do those functions? Can we afterwards devise treatments that are similar to that, like a fecal transplant? And so we can really improve this diarrhea in a shorter time and so on. Then obviously, and traditionally, a lot of people, veterinarians are trying to use fecal transplant in dogs with chronic diarrhea. And their the success is actually quite varied. So there are some veterinarians are very excited, they report very high success rates in chronic diarrhea, but there's also a lot of veterinarians or colleagues of mine who report almost zero success rates in dogs with chronic diarrhea. And again, because of that, we believe that in chronic diarrhea, the inflammatory process is very advanced. And so, when we do a fecal transplant, we can improve the gut microbiota, but we cannot really improve the underlying inflammation because this process itself is driven by the immune system. So in chronic GI disease, I think... It's worth an adjunct therapy, but it's not necessarily that we're going to heal the underlying problem. Why was this chronic GI disease present in the beginning, if that makes sense? So again, I think there are some success rates, so it might be as an adjunct therapy, but at this point, it's very empirical. So based on all this data we have at the moment, and it's very, very, only a few case reports, just very early studies, it would suggest that fecal transplant has the highest success rates in those areas where we most likely have only dysbiosis, but not yet a very advanced chronic GI disease or chronic enteropathy. So, for example, young animals who have a history of long-term antibiotic usage, they actually respond very well to fecal transplants because in those animals, the microbiome got dysbiotic because of antibiotic usage, but it's not yet this really underlying GI disease presence. So, I think with time, I think we're going to narrow it more down and select better patients who are more likely to respond to fecal transplants. So I'm very excited about it. I think fecal transplant is going to be something that we should use a lot. We're going to have to much more be more empirical at this point to understand which patient population is more responsive to fecal transplant, which at this point I would think would be younger animals or animals where from all the clinical symptoms or clinical signs, they're more likely to have just dysbiosis rather than our uh, underlying GI inflammation. But I really believe that fecal transplant is an option that we should always consider. There's also in chronic GI disease, there are some patients who have responded to nothing else than the fecal transplants. So it's always something that we should keep in mind that we could do. But with time, I think we're going to better recognize which patient population is the best. And also, we, the more we do fecal transplant, the more we understand what pathways are improved by fecal transplant. And long term, the goal would be to select or design new treatment approaches that just target those pathways so we can go away from this very crude approach of a fecal transplant.
0: How much do we know about the process after transplantation? How long do these microbes stay alive in the transplanted recipient? Do we have a lot of information about that? What happens after the transplant?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, we don't really have much information about that at all. So there's not really large-scale studies have been done so far. We, I can only tell you from a few dogs that we did, and we really did a follow-up full uh, analysis. And I think it really varies on the GI disease. So there was one study in three dogs, we've called Anthropathy. And what you could see is that dogs responded very after one week that a microbiome was close to the donor dog. But if you follow them up for every week for up to eight weeks, you saw that the microbiome afterwards moved in a different direction. So meaning we changed the gut microbiota that was very similar to the, to the donor dog. But after time, it actually changed for every patient differently. And again, because those dogs had really underlying GI inflammation. And as I said before, GI inflammation is a driver of dysbiosis. What that means is probably when we transplanted only once, we could see an improvement in the microbiota, but because the inflammation was still present, it drove dysbiosis and dysbiosis came back and it altered. We did a study in dogs that received antibiotics and we showed, it was not published, but we only have a few dogs that we followed up using the gold cell sequencing. And we could show that in, do, in this dog, there was one dog that had a, induced dysbiosis to antibiotics. It was abnormal for four months. And then we did a fecal transplant on this dog. And this dog, ultimately, its microbiome became similar like the donor dog and actually stayed like the donor dog, if that makes sense. So again, suggesting this dog had really a dysbiosis induced through antibiotics, so there was no underlying GI disease. And so in these cases, we probably can, when we replant the microbiota, we probably can make it more normal and it stays normal for a long time. So they really attach those bacteria. So, I think really, again, it's coming back to it and depends on the underlying pathophysiology of the disease and how a fecal transplant or microbiotaal transplantation fits into that therapy, and how it's going to respond to that.
0: so I guess when when you're talking about this, it's making me think what makes a good donor candidate <laughs> so when we we want to pick a dog to, donate. Yeah. <laughs> what are we looking for?
1: So I think, yeah, that's also something that we still don't know. I think the, the best what we can do at the moment is to take a dog that has no history of GI disease, ideally no history of antibiotic usage, but that's actually quite difficult to find. Yeah. It's almost mm-hmm. impossible to find. I would say a dog that is generally healthy At the moment, we have at the GI lab um, an assay, it's called the dysbiosis index, where we can screen very quickly for normal microbiota. So this tells you if this dog has normal microbiome or abnormal microbiome. And more importantly, like I mentioned before, there's quite a lot of metabolic pathways that we now know are important in maintaining GI health. And one of them is the bile acid pathway, especially secondary bile acids, because they are really important drivers of normal microbiota composition. And there's one important bacterium, it's called Cristolum Hilanonis, that we now identified as the major converter of bile acids from primary into secondary bile acids in the gut. And so in a in a healthy animal, you wanna have in the colon a lot of secondary bile acids. So we need this bacterium called Cristolomhylanonis. And so, we can screen our donor dogs for this presence of this bacterium. Because roughly 10% of clinically healthy animals don't have it, and so they're probably not very good donor dogs. So, as you said, it's small steps, but at least we can narrow it down to some key components, what we want in a donor dog. And obviously, beyond that, we want to make sure that this dog doesn't have any pathogens. So, PCR panel for enteropathogens or a normal enteropatogen panel it's important to exclude donor dogs that have Campylobacter, Salmonella, that have Clostridium difficile, and Clostridium perfringens with enterotoxin or native toxin-producing strains.
0: This is such an interesting, like you said, it, it, it's kind of hard to um, identify with our our donor dogs, but I guess it leads me to my keep it brief question. And I will put very little pressure on you for that because we rarely keep it brief, but we're seeing these home testing kits for microbes, right? And so it makes me wonder what the accuracy of those are um, when we're getting questions from our clients Uh, How do we help guide them on these products? And then also, is it something we should be using to screen donor dogs?
1: So yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think before I answer this question, what is important to understand is that we know now why the microbiome is so complicated is that every single individual has a very individualized microbiota composition. So there are kind of estimates that people share only 10% of the microbiota. What that means is, on a genus level, we all have lactobacilli, or we have bifidobacteria. But on the species level, everybody of us has different of different species, different, and so on. And then the proportions of them are also quite different. So what we know now is that every patient has a different signature. But that also means that every patient can respond to therapies that are targeted to them. Microbiota therapy differently, because depending on what species are present in the guts, they can ferment different fiber sources or not ferment them, and so on. So this is really important to understand that every patient is very individualized in their composition. That also makes it very difficult when you get an assessment of the microbiota. It is very difficult when you when you get an out print out and you have all those different species. They have, can range very, very drastically in proportions. Uh, so I'll give an example, like fecalibaxium can be present in one dog, completely healthy dog at 5%, and in uh, other dogs, it's also healthy at 12%. So the range is very huge for all the species. So it's very difficult from those printouts to truly understand what is a normal microbiota or abnormal microbiota. And So like in our lab, what we developed over time is a so-called index where we can summarize all this data mathematically into one single number, and we can report this as a reference interval. So this number tells us at least is the microbiome in a normal range or abnormal range. But when you look at the presence of species and when I see some of those reports from companies, it's it's for me a little bit difficult to truly understand what I can do with this information or how how can I predict the therapy response and so on. And again, the reason for that is this individuality and this range of normal between different animals.
0: Well, and, and I guess that makes me just want to, you know, real quick as a as a last wrap up question: What other species are we are we looking at this in?
1: Well, I mean, cats for sure. So there's definitely uh, some we we do a uh, few studies in cats. So cats also can respond very well to fecal transplantation. I'm not familiar with any other species where we are doing it. I think I, had, I heard the questions about rabbits. I'm not sure if anybody did it in rabbits and so on, but for the moment, I mean, in, in, in the medicine itself, it's in human medicine, it's in humans with C. difficile, C. difficile infection, and then there's studies in dogs and cats and in horses.
0: And 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 a lot more to come. I know that. I, could, I think this is so interesting. Thank you for the work that you do. I, I know that it's not maybe glorious work, right? It's not a, <laughs> a beautiful topic to talk about. But this is important. I know more is going to be coming. And we're going to do better patient care on all of the body systems because of what we're identifying here.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, what important, I think, what we learned, we learned that the microbiome is a really important part of the pathophysiology. But it's also very complicated. And I think it's very difficult because... We have to kind of apply new principles. We have to apply ecological principles. So, like, is like an ecosystem. And so, it's kind of imagine you would, you would discover the jungle. There's so many different species interactions between those species. So, that makes it really difficult to study. But also, what we learned now is that because it's an ecosystem, Thanks prevention. again to today's guests for joining us, and thanks to you too. for listening. If and you so enjoyed today's is, episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your, your favorite podcast. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We, we appreciate if you leave us like all that. the stars. Really you can listen
0: to podcasts as well so on we our website at cliniciansbrief.com.
1: You can find us at facebook.com. Cliniciansbrief. On Twitter, at cliniciansbrief. And on Instagram, at cliniciansbrief. You can also
0: drop us a line at podcast. I love that. It's a very salient point. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing brief, and, the and taking is some a time away production. to have this conversation with Alexis us to talk Osteri, about your article Rambles published Juka. in January 2019, me, Clinician's Mosser, Brief Entitled Intestinal Dysbiosis. Dr. Zukodolsky thank you so much again for your time today. Oh,
1: thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.